Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, Dr. Cameron Jack and I are going to be interviewing Eli Powell with the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Texas in Austin, Texas. He just released a paper called Field Realistic Tylosin Exposure Impacts Honeybee Microbiota and Pathogen Susceptibility. So I'm really excited to discuss this topic with him, especially because Beekeepers are working a lot more with veterinarians, working on something that's called the veterinary feed directive. And so I feel like this research really ties in with the health of honeybees and antibiotics. And so thank you so much, Eli, for joining us today. Hey, it's a real honor to be here. I'm excited to talk about the research and to talk about uh, honeybees. Well, awesome. So before we go into the actual topic in your paper, uh, we like to share with our audience, you know, who they're kind of speaking to. And so if you wouldn't mind, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this research um, and just about, you know, your interest in honeybees in general? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, first thing out of the gate, what I have to say is that I, I mostly study bacteria, but these bacteria happen to live in, in honeybees. So I work with bees a lot and really honored to have uh, done a lot of work with honeybees. So um, I have to give you a little little history lesson here, mostly because my research has kind of been built on the research of the, the team around me. So I work in the lab of Dr. Nancy Moran and uh, have worked with her uh, since uh, 2010. Um, and she's, she's a really amazing individual, if, if anybody is familiar with her work. So she's this uh, pioneer of studying symbiosis between bacteria and insects. So, you know, most of her work has been done in uh, aphids and other sap feeding insects. So this is kind of cool because sap feeding insects live on this material in plants that has like virtually no nutrition in it. And they use the bacteria that live inside these uh, aphids in order to convert this like really nutrient poor substrate into something that they can live off of. So uh, Nancy, at some point, um, she had a graduate student named Vince Martinson, um, who's at the University of New Mexico now, who got really interested in uh, bee gut bacteria. And this was back in about, you know, just a little before 2007. So um, when uh, all of the colony collapse disorder stuff started coming uh, to the fore, and simultaneously, there was this sort of revolution in how we do a lot of scientific stuff. So it's this, uh, you know, we, we call it like the, the revolution in metagenomics um, or in molecular biology. So we were able to use DNA from bacteria to uh, look at things that we couldn't culture, like on Petri dishes. We could just see, you know, take a peek inside of you know, a bacterial community and see all the, all the individual species that were in there. And so um, in 2007, Vince and Nancy and some other people like Diane Cox Foster wrote this paper for uh, the journal Science about colony collapse disorder and um, what, you know, if there were any bacterial signs of that. One of the, the interesting things that they found back then um, that some other folks had sort of uncovered was that there's this really small um, group of bacterial species that live in the guts of honeybees all over the world. So uh, that was kind of like this springboard for Nancy to get this, this grant from the National Science Foundation. And that's when I joined the lab. And so, yeah, it's been pretty cool. So uh, it's, it's been an adventure ever since. And um, honeybees are, have, you know, become a, a bigger, bigger part of the lab. But uh, Nancy's lab, looks into all kinds of different symbiotic associations between bacteria and and insects so it's it's pretty cool 
Yeah, that's super cool. Um, yeah. Thanks for giving us some some of the background, Eli. So, you know, with this this recent paper that out of Nancy's lab, and and you're we're one of the you're the lead author on this paper. It was about um, tylosin and how it affects the gut microbiota of bees. So, I guess the very first thing to maybe even think about is is can you just tell us a little bit about you know what tylosin is and why some beekeepers are going to be using these using this in the colony? Sure. Yeah. So uh, tylosin tartrate, it's a it's an antibiotic um, in this class of antibiotics called macrolides. Um, and they they basically just shut down the system uh, in bacteria. Um, they call it bacteriostatic. They kind of put bacteria into this like uh, limbo state. Um, and uh, the brand name that it's sold to beekeepers under is uh, Thailand, and it's um, been used in uh, veterinary applications for years and years. But uh, in, I, I believe it was in 2005, the FDA approved it for use in beehives. And uh, the big reason that beekeepers use antibiotics in general and Tylosin specifically is because of this really nasty bacteria called Penibacillus larvae which causes this disease called American fowl brood. And this uh, bacteria, is, it's what, what we call gram-positive bacteria. So these bacteria have this really heavy duty, they're, they're just very super durable, um, have a very big cell wall, and they're like the tanks of the bacterial world. So they form these really nasty spores and um, these spores can actually stick around for decades, you know, like 20, 30 years, maybe more. And uh, young larval bees get it, they die, they get super infected, and they become these reservoirs for spores. And the spores are super infectious and can move from one beehive to another. So the disease, when it gets, when you get a bad infestation, can wreck a whole apiary. And really the only way to deal with this is you know, when you get a bad infestation is to incinerate your hives. And then um, like trying to clean your equipment can be very expensive because uh, they have to like irradiate it or use these really harsh chemical treatments. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's a very scary thing for beekeepers to deal with, you know, and, and to, to uh, worry about getting American fowl brood. So up until, you know, pretty recently, and e even still, a lot of beekeepers use tetracycline, um, oxytetracycline to treat hives. Um, which is also super common in agriculture. And uh, it's, I think it's been used to treat American fowl brood probably since the 1970s. But, you know, as like with human medicine, evolution is really tricky and, and something that's a tool one day becomes a real liability the next. So, you know, we see this in, in like human medicine where we get these drug resistant bacteria. Same thing happens with like veterinary applications or out in the environment where, you know, we're basically taking antibiotics and putting them out into the world. And so tetracycline was used for decades, but then Penibacillus larvae started getting uh, resistant to it. And so uh, the FDA approved these other antibiotics, um, tylosin and uh, lincomycin. But um, a few years ago, uh, the FDA started getting really worried about these things just being spread out in the world and, and causing antibiotic resistance. And that's that's really when they started the veterinary feed directive. And um, so uh, basically they wanted folks in agriculture to have to talk to a veterinarian and learn how to properly um, use antibiotics and uh, to use them to, to treat a specific problem. But um, you know, even so, I think there's still, and, and has traditionally been a, a history of folks just kind of like trying to use antibiotics in a preventative way prior to actually having a problem. So anyway, long story short, beekeepers are really scared of American fowl brood, and that's totally understandable. And the use of antibiotics is a way to, to treat that or to uh, attempt to prevent it. Yeah, I still feel like there's a lot of research that needs to go into it for sure. Um, you know, it's funny, 
Cameron and Eli, I said, I said Tylosin and you guys are like Tylosin. And so now I'm feeling like I've been saying it wrong this whole time. Can someone correct I, I, me? What is I think, it? <laughs> I think it's a tomato, tomato kind of. Okay. All right. All right. Well, you know, it's, I'm really glad that you brought up American foul brood because that's the whole reason, right? For the use of the chemical. And so, you know, here in the state of Florida, if you have American foul brood, you know, you're, it's required to burn them. I think like right mm -hmm. there, right then, because you don't want to spread it. And then of course, to be able to use the same beekeeping equipment, you know, that's been used in that colony is, um, you know, I'm not quite sure what the recommendation on that is, but, you know, so we're talking about your study. And mm -hmm. so I'm just wondering, can you tell us, uh, I guess, tell us what you were actually looking at and what you were testing. Okay. Yeah. So, um, some previous studies uh, out of our lab and, and others had, had uh, done some research with tetracycline and um, looked at how it impacted the bee gut microbiota. If anyone's interested in, in that stuff, Dr. Casey Raymond, who's at University of North Carolina, she looked at um, how tetracycline affected the bee gut microbiota and found that there were these big impacts. Now, she used some really high levels of the antibiotic and so we wanted to look at, you know, if you treated actual hives, like out in the environment with, you know, like a field realistic dose of Tylosin, what would that do to the microbiome? And then how would that affect bee health? So, you know, this, th there's this whole community of bacteria in, in the bee gut. And we wanted to see if like uh, beneficial members of the, of the microbiome got knocked out or like totally eliminated. Did they come back later? And then we also wanted to see like if bees were more susceptible to infection um, because uh, American Falbrood and uh, Pena bacillus aren't, aren't, aren't the only bad actors out there. Uh, again, I'm, I'm going to use the analogy of, of human health. You know, um, there are these uh, opportunistic pathogens that are just kind of out there all the time that, you know, like with people, you know, if, if we get sick or our immune system gets knocked down somehow some sometimes this thing that's just residing in our gut making a happy living in there takes over and we get really really sick so same thing happens with bees so we wanted to to check that out and, and see what kind of impacts those were that that would be like a, a state that we call dysbiosis where this uh gut community that's usually in, in kind of this homeostatic equilibrium gets knocked out all out of whack. Um, and then the other thing we wanted to kind of look at was uh, this idea behind using a probiotic mixture to kind of rebuild the community that was there before and to see if that helped bees deal with this uh, opportunistic pathogen. So yeah, that's the, that's the basic premise of the study there. Well, well, Eli, I mean, you touched, you know, a little bit on this, but I'm, I'm curious more about this idea of, of the, you know, the entire gut microbiota. Can you tell us, you know, why, why do we want to worry about the entire gut microbiota of honeybees specifically? Yeah, well, uh, bees are really an interesting uh, species in this regard. You know, like some insects can't live at all without the microbes that that are in their in their guts like so I mentioned aphids earlier but bees we we can actually raise them in the lab without bacteria in their guts and this is because they pick it up in the hive from adults when they when they emerge from the brood frame they're just trucking around and there's nurses there's uh, bacteria all over the frames and they they pick it up and, and some of that this is this is an area for um for more investigation, but there may be like a, an intentional kind of communication of bacteria at some point. And a lot of insects do that. So anyway, like I said, we, we can raise young bees in the lab without bacteria and raise them with bacteria. And so this has allowed us to compare and contrast bees with and without microbes and, um, you know, put them in a bunch of different scenarios to see what this microbiota does. And so what we've discovered is that the bee gut microbiome is really important to helping bees do things like, uh, for example, develop correctly by um, stimulating these genes related to aging and role transitioning, you know, like from, from being nurse bees to foraging. 
as well as uh, a lot of these bacteria break down complex components in the outer uh, coat of pollen and uh, odd chemicals that are in nectar, even like sugars that are in nectar that are toxic to bees. And there's some compelling research that they may help bees get detoxified from uh, environmental contaminants. So we're still kind of in the early stages of figuring out the complicated relationship between bees and, and their gut bacteria. As some, some other things to, to think about with the, the bee gut microbiome is that, um, you know, in, in science, we often use these things called model systems, um, where you take like a complex problem and you use a, a system to break it down into something really simple, you know, so like if, a, if people who are studying the human brain want to look at gene pathways in the human brain, they'll often study things like fruit flies or nematodes. The honeybees are, are an interesting species because they have this microbiome that, you know, is the same between bees all over the world. Even some other honeybees have these same bacterial members, like um, the eastern honeybee, Apis serrana, has really a closely related microbiome to Apis mellifera. So we can, we can, uh, and, you know, it's this, this small community of a, of a, of a few bacterial species, whereas like the human gut has dozens or even hundreds of different species or strains in them. So it's, it's a way to look at, you know, how do, how does the microbiome in general kind of interact? What, what are the essential parts to a microbiome? How do they interact with host tissues, things like that? So there's that other layer that, you know, by studying the, the honeybee microbiome, we can understand more complex ideas about micro, microbiomes in general. That is this so crazy. Thing, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's so cool. And so interesting. I can't imagine how difficult it would be to just like disentangle all the effects of all these different bacteria in the gut and see, you know, to know what they're contributing to the overall health. It's, it's got to be so complicated and and well beyond my abilities. Yeah, and luckily there are, I mean, it's a real active area of research. There are uh, quite a few labs looking into it now, and it's an expanding area of, of research. So it's, it's really cool to be involved in something where you get to see new science all the time. So it's, it's fun. Yeah, I also know that they're doing a lot of research on, you know, fungicides and the effects on, you know, the the honeybee gut. So I feel like there's just so much to examine um, sure. with the honeybee gut. So that's that's pretty cool. Did you say that you're able to raise them in the lab with or without this gut microbiome? And and in that case, you know, does that mean that in nature, I mean, if they're just in their colonies outside, they're born without that gut microbiome? Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, I, I mean, young bees acquire it very quickly and have a like a normal large population of bacteria in their guts, like within three days after they emerge. But um, yeah, at that moment that they emerge from the cell, they don't they don't have a gut microbiome. That is so cool. Okay. Yeah. So now when I'm nerding out <laughs> <laughs> when we when we uh, work with these bees in the lab, we'll actually open up the capped brood cells and, and use little forceps to pull the young bees out and put them into, you know, these Tupperware bins and put those in an incubator to emerge. Very cool. So what were some of the main results that you found from your study? Okay, well, um, so basically the, the, the biggest impact we, we found was that a couple of really important microbes in the bee gut get knocked way down during and then immediately after treatment. And so the, 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 the two bacteria, one of them's got kind of a funny name, um, is Snodgrassella alvi, and it's named after a, a famous entomologist whose last name was Snodgrass. That's like perfect <laughs> name for somebody who studies bugs. Anyway, um, this bacteria uh, lives in the ileum, which is, is kind of, um, if, if you look at the, the, the bee gut, it's, it's basically just this long tube and there's this uh, mid-gut section where the bee gets most of its nutrients from, um, but not a lot of bacteria live in there. I guess upstream from that is the crop, which a lot of people will be familiar with because that's where when, when foragers go out and get nectar, they, they put it into the crop and bring it back to the hive and then put it into the, the honey cells. Um, or when nurses are feeding young bees, they'll, they'll have uh, nectar or honey in 
in their crop and be able to feed the young bees with that. And then uh, you got the mid gut and then the area where there's a lot of bacteria is this part called the ileum and then the rectum. Um, the ileum is this really small, short tube that has these really complicated like uh, invaginations or, or crevices in them that um, all of uh, the, there's this like thick biofilm of bacteria that live inside there. Um, and then the rectum is, is like where all of the, you know, pollen grains wind up down the road and just kind of sit there and there's like this whole other community of bacteria that live in that that in the rectum rectal compartment so snodgrass aloe lives in that 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 uh biofilm that's inside the ileum which is kind of like our uh as you'd say like our small intestine um and it's a it's a really interesting bacteria because it forms this biofilm which is kind of a barrier for pathogens to make it into the uh into the hemolymph of the bee um but, and there's, there's, there's some other research that it kind of has this special relationship with the bee, but they, um, it helps to uh, activate immune genes, a bunch of other things. Another bacteria that uh, the Tylosin treatment knocked way down was um, Bifidobacterium. And that's one of the species that lives in that, you know, far end of the, the gut, the rectum, and it helps break down uh, parts of the outer coat of pollen. So when, when a bee consumes pollen, most of it's like, raw protein and stuff is absorbed in the in the mid gut so way upstream of where it it meets bacteria but then once it it goes downstream uh into the rectum and is, is sitting in there these other bacteria go to work on it and start to break it down this so bifidobacterium um some folks might recognize the name because humans have bifidobacterium in their guts and you can actually buy like probiotics of bifidobacterium and that's the part of the the, the human microbiome that that breaks down um, complex fibers um, and produces these short chain fatty acids that are really important for all kinds of things in, in human biology that's same kind of deal with bees so anyway we showed that the total numbers of these bacteria were depleted as well as Within each one of those species, like Snodgrassella or Bifidobacterium, there's a whole like constellation of these strains. And each one of these strains of, say, Bifidobacterium have a little different toolkit to do different things at a molecular level. So we, we found that, you know, both the total numbers of Snodgrassella and Bifidobacterium were knocked down, as well as the number of strains. And then we showed that uh, the bacteria, you know, after treatment, it it comes back about a month after the treatment. But we showed that kind of in that interval, like post-treatment, that bees from treated hives are, are more susceptible to dying when they get challenged with an opportunistic pathogen. So we used this stuff called serratia, which is a real common um, microbe in, in beehives and even in bee guts. I mean, um, bees carry this bacteria around all the time and usually it's not a problem. But like I said, when you have, uh, um, when that uh, microbiome gets upset, um, it gets dysbiotic, then it, then it can become a problem. So yeah, we showed that, you know, you disrupt the, the bacterial community. And then when you give bees serratia, it can be a real problem and, and they can die sooner. And then um, the other interesting thing that we uh, looked into was that we took these bees that had been from hives that had been treated with tylosin. And then we gave a portion of them a probiotic cocktail of some of those bee species or, or bee gut microbiome species that had been cultivated on, on Petri dishes. So basically an artificial community of bacteria. And then we found that uh, bees that got that cocktail were less susceptible to dying. Anyway, it, it remains to be seen, uh, you know, just how much the benefits of this particular probiotic idea might help, but it's kind of a unique idea. Most probiotics that, you, that, that beekeepers have access to right now are, you know, not from the bee gut. They're, they're uh, from like, basically from fermented human foods, um, things like that. Uh, so they're, they're like uh, industrially produced for mostly for human or uh, livestock consumption. Um, and so, you know, may have some kind of benefit for bee immunity, but they don't 
live in, in bees. They don't have any kind of long-term impact on, on helping the bee gut microbiome. So yeah, that's, that's uh, in, a, in a nutshell what, uh, what our study uncovered. Yeah, really, really cool. So, so let me let me see if I can kind of uh, summarize this a little bit. So, so basically, you've got Tylosin that's that's knocking down a, a couple of key um, bacteria that are in the gut, and when that happens, you also if if those bees are challenged with another bacteria, I mean they they don't survive as well. But by feeding this probiotic, you seem this some kind of cocktail probiotics um, may support that health and, and may help them kind of return to strength. Did I get that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's correct. And I, I don't, I, I, I don't want to oversell the idea of the probiotic This is sure. like a real active area of investigation. So, um, and you know, jury's still out on, on uh, probiotics with bees in general. Um, and uh, this, this is kind of a new idea too. So um Anyway, but yeah, in this study, which, you know, any, anytime you're looking at a, at a scientific study, it, there's, it's, you know, very controlled and, um, and uh, kind of buttoned down in, in a number of different ways. So yeah, in, in our study, that, that is true. Yes. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that, this leads me to my next question then. I, I was just thinking, you know, if you had all the research funding in the world and you were, I mean, what's the next step? Like, what's the next research that you think is needs to be done now are you going to focus more on the probiotics are you going to um, maybe work to maybe learn more of the impacts of of tylosin or other antibiotics i mean i just curious obviously if we had millions of dollars to do whatever research we want we could answer a lot of questions but but just curious you know what where does this research project take you next well i think i think um i think it's interesting to look at probiotics. Um, it's also interesting to look at, so one thing we, we are actually studying the lab right now is, and, and this is like completely within the lab, we have, have looked at ways in which we can alter, genetically alter some of those bacteria to help the bees immunity and things like that. Currently, you can't put genetically modified organisms out in the environment, which is probably good. But someday, I, I actually think that kind of technology might really help do things like um, help bees deal with, uh, you know, the whole myriad of uh, viruses that they encounter, you know, parasites, all kinds of things like that. So I think that's, 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 that's really interesting stuff, like basically how you can help the, the microbiome to administer living vaccines or uh, buttress the, the, the bees own immunity, uh, things like that. But yeah, in, in the near term, uh, we, have, we have folks who are uh, looking into things like um, how a lot of other agrochemicals, common agrochemicals affect the bee gut microbiome and bee health. So we've got a, a guy in the lab, uh, Eric Mota, who's looked a lot at glyphosate, which is uh, uh, the, the major component in Roundup which is, you know, the most common herbicide currently used and, and has found that, that, that it has some impacts on, on the bee gut microbiome. And then looking at, at things like, um, you know, diet supplementation that is used in apiculture and uh, stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, there's, there's no shortage of things to study out there. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait to hear, um, you know, when you all have some publishable papers to be able to read some of the findings that you get from the research that you have. Yeah. So I have a million dollar question to ask you, and that is what recommendations do you have for beekeepers uh, regarding the application of Tylosin? Tylosin. <laughs> well, um, I would, uh, I would just kind of point to the veterinary feed directive and, you know, cause that's, that's kind of like, uh, a, a document that, um, I, I think comes out of some, some good science and some good concern about, you know, how we don't create super bugs kind of in the future. So I, I do recommend that, uh, beekeepers use antibiotics to treat, uh, specific outbreaks and not to use them in any kind of like prophylactic or a preventative way. And I don't know, it's, it, it's, I, you know, it, these, these 
kinds of things I, I hate to, you know, wag fingers at people. It's not really my style, but um, there, you know, there, there is a chance that there is, uh, you may, you may be opening your, your hives up to some harm over the long run. And um, as well as just contributing to antibiotic resistance in the environment. Um, it's also important to, to note that, um, you know, antibiotics uh, kill active Penibacillus uh, cells, but they don't actually kill the spores of the bacteria. So um, sometimes this treatment is is kind of a mask um, for uh, you know you you might be treating uh, your current outbreak, but you might be like opening things up to uh, a worse one down the line because, like I said, these spores can stick around for decades. So. And then uh, in terms of, uh, you know, because I, I brought up probiotic treatment, uh, really the jury's still out on uh, probiotic treatment, either with, you know, these, uh, these kind of reconstructed beak up microbiome communities or with, you know, the, the more common commercially available probiotics, you know, with, with things from like yogurt and sauerkraut and stuff like that. There, there are a, a bunch of studies that come out all the time. Some look super positive. Some say that the, you know, addition of these probiotics are totally neutral. So if you want to give probiotics to your bees, it's probably not going to harm them, but it might not do anything positive either. So uh, it might be kind of a waste of money. So anyway, I, I would urge people to, to, uh, support the science because most of this uh, research is paid for with your tax dollars. So try to try to empower scientists to go out and, and answer these questions and, and figure out um, good ways of, of helping uh, bees and beekeepers. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think if they are going to be using uh, the antibiotics to make sure that they rotate active ingredients, right? And so that would kind of minimize the resistance um, of that bacteria. Now I have, I do have one more question. I'm sorry, this, this episode is just going to last forever because I have so many questions. Um, you know, let's say there's one colony that has American fowl brood. Would you recommend treating just that colony? Let's say that there's a colony of, you know, let's say there are 20 of them that are all nearby and, and in one location. Would you recommend just using, you know, just treating that one colony or, or all of them? Jeez, I, I don't know. <laughs> this is like one of those questions where you got the train and it's, you know, it's going to either go off the bridge and yeah, no, I don't, you got to pull a lever and the train goes one way or the other. Um, I, uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I'm probably not the one to answer that question, but uh, yeah, it's interesting to think about. I mean, just as you mentioned, Eli, I mean, treating a colony with that, that already is infected with American fowl brood, it doesn't get rid of the spores. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it's, it's not, there doesn't seem to be a lot to do in that situation besides remove that colony as fast as sure. you can from that apiary, get it out. Yeah. yeah. It's tough. It yeah. really is tough. I mean, I, 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 as a beekeeper myself too, like I, I feel this, this is, this is hard and, and you, you want to protect your bees. And so you might get that antibiotic and be treating them. Um, but then there's, there's side effects and it's costly to just treat prophylactically and there's other problems. So it's, it's, it's just a tricky situation that I don't think has an easy answer. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's totally fair. All right, Eli, is there anything else that you wanted to share with our audience before we finish up the segment? No, I just uh, I just wanted to thank you all for your interest in our research and that uh, you know, being involved uh, in the beekeeping community and, and working with uh, such spectacular creatures has been a real honor. Um, I, I had to work uh, out at our field hives in the Texas Hill Country last week, and I just couldn't such a beautiful fall day. I, I couldn't believe that I was getting paid to be out there doing it. So, so yeah, it's a real, real honor and a really fun thing to do research on. So yeah, thank you. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. We have the best job in the world, you guys. Just <laughs> wanted to let you know that. <laughs> All right, everyone. So that was Eli Powell with the Department of Integrative Biology with the University of Texas in Austin, Texas. And he was speaking to us about field realistic tylosin exposure impacts, honeybee microbiota and pathogen susceptibility. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. Welcome to the five minute management. Five minute management. And actually, in this five minute management, we're going to talk about how we're going to manage the five minute management. So uh, I don't know if that just broke everyone's brain or not, but it kind of did mine. So, Jamie, you know, every single year, well, let me take a step back. So, right now, we are recording in January of 2022. We've had the podcast since 2020. And so our episodes looked a little bit different in 2020 uh, and in 2021, we added the five minute management. And so at the end of the year, we usually put out a survey to our listeners, just asking them what they liked, what they didn't like, what they want us to change. And so I thought that we could take this opportunity to just discuss maybe what we plan on doing moving forward with a five minute management or whether we're going to have that at all. So, um, you know, did you want to add any input as far as what you see or envision us doing for the rest of 2022? Yeah, Amy, this this is really good lead in to kind of some of our vision. First of all, what I will say is this podcast is not about us, right? It's not about me. It's not about you, Amy, right? It's, it's not really even about the guests that we have on. This podcast in general, two bees in a podcast in general is about you, our listeners. And Amy and I and our team here at the University of Florida, we want to make a podcast that you use. We want to talk about things you want to hear. We want to talk about management strategies that you end up using. So it's very important to us, both, both Amy and myself, it's important to us that you provide feedback. And when you provide feedback, either through our social media channels or through direct emails to either Amy or myself or through the yearly surveys, that we use that feedback to change our podcast. And one of the things that Amy just mentioned, Amy, you're spot on, right? We've, we've been taking big management issues, for example, recently producing queens, rearing queens, and we've split them up over multiple five-minute management segments over multiple episodes. But based on feedback, you guys have really enjoyed the management segments. So rather than making them small segments of every episode, what we'll do is we'll sprinkle entire management episodes among our episode list. So we might interview a scientist this week, we might interview a beekeeper next week, and the next week it might be just me and Amy talking about how to feed bees, right? And so we're trying to do this because we want to make sure our podcast is as useful to you, but also as delightful and entertaining to you as possible. So thanks for the feedback and please let us know how we can make it better. But like we said in the future, we're trying to take those smaller segments and combine them into just larger episodes where we spend a lot of time talking about various aspects of managing honeybee colonies. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. Welcome to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. We are back at our question and answer segment. And Jamie, we've got three questions here. The first one is that this person was interested in knowing what organ or what part of the body um, insects use to interpret pheromones um, and then understand it as communication. Are there other insects that use pheromones to communicate yep, with each other? A- absolutely. I, I believe all the insects do. I hate to make such a broad statement, but if, if all don't, then 99.99999% of them do. Smell is very important in insects in general. And of course, the same is true for honeybees. And so the organ, so bees don't have noses, right? And neither do the other insects, but the organ, the appendage that they use to detect smells uh, would be um, the antenna. So they have two antenna, right? One on either side of the top of their head, and they use these to detect pheromones. If you look closely at an antenna under a microscope, maybe even a scanning electron microscope, you'll notice that there's a couple of features on the, the, the standard antenna. 
they often have, especially a honeybee antenna, they have these little spikes that are for tactile stimulus, right? So they touch things and can feel things. So it's like the finger part of their antenna. And they also have these little recessed pits that are the chemo sensors or the chemical sensors. In that case, the things that pick up the pheromones. So honeybees communicate to one another using pheromones. Pheromones are chemicals that, that produce a scent that bees can detect. And these chemicals are secreted by glands. In this case, exocrine glands, glands that secrete these chemicals outside of the body. So one bee might be producing this pheromone that the other bee can detect using her antenna. And we also know that uh, chemical signatures can be passed among bees by licking, right? We know that bees will lick the queen, for example, and they'll pass uh, her pheromones on to other bees through these uh, secretions that they will mix with the food as they're passing on to other bees through this process called trophallaxis. But principally, pheromones are detected through antenna. That's pretty cool. It is cool. Bugs are cool. <laughs> Bugs are pretty cool. All right. So the second question, so the, actually the second topic is, is a bunch of questions. And so I'll just go ahead and read it. If you miss any of them, I'll let you know. But but the second question is about brood breaks. And so this person is asking if they're an effective integrated pest management strategy for Varroa. And I guess maybe we should take one step back to even discuss, you know, what brood breaks are and why people do them. And then of course, when when should we try to do a brood break or what are some of the potential drawbacks? Yeah, so in, in the strictest sense, right, a brood break, and I hate to use the two words in their own <laughs> definition, it's a break in the presence of brood in the hive. Now, for people who live in colder areas of the temperate world, that will occur mostly throughout winter. It's a natural brood break. The queen will curtail her egg laying in mid to late fall. She won't lay through winter, and you get this natural break in the brood cycle. The brood's not dead. It's just not there. They're not producing any. Maybe there's no pollen coming in. Maybe it's cold. They don't want to produce brood during the cold season. Now, the link that brood breaks have to Varroa is that Varroa must reproduce in capped brood cells. So when there is a natural brood break in the hive, Varroa are unable to reproduce. This basic biological observation led some beekeepers and scientists to say, well, if Varroa can't reproduce when there's no brood in the hive, maybe creating a broodless period in the hive will be a good strategy for reducing Varroa populations. And it is at certain times of the year and under certain management scenarios. Years ago, I'm going to put a date on it. I hate to put a date on it, but I'm just going to guess and say it was about 10 years ago. I met an Italian researcher who was looking at brood breaks in Italian beekeeping operations. And what they discovered is that a lot of commercial beekeepers were using brood breaks. What they would do is in summer, like June and July, the, the, the periods of the year that I would think that brood breaks would be stressful for bees, they were causing brood breaks in their hives. And they were doing this by caging the queen for somewhere between 21 and 28 days. And with the queen caged that period, the existing brood in the hive would make all it make its way through all of its developmental stages. So by day 28, there'd be no brood left in the nest, right? Technically by, by day 21, there'd be no worker brood. And by day 24, there'd be no drone brood. But, but if you give it a few extra days to in, include a cushion, by 28 days later, there'd be no brood in the nest. And with no brood in the nest, there's no varroa reproducing. And all the varroa then would be on the adult bees and they would be vulnerable to treatment. So the Italian commercial beekeepers were creating a basically a one month brood break. And then they were treating with oxalic acid uh, right at the time that they would release the queen from the queen cage. Again, this idea is that all of the mites were on the adult bees. So they are incredibly vulnerable to any treatment that you would put in the nest. So um, Dr. Cameron Jack here from the University of Florida, as part of his original PhD research, was testing this very issue. If he could create a brood break by caging a queen, would he be able to treat the colonies during the brood break period? And um, would it be okay? And in his research project, and again, I, I want to throw out this caveat that research, right, only answers questions relevant to how the project was done, where it was done, and when it was done. 
So I don't want you to take anything I say here as an overarching statement saying that brood breaks don't work, but I will just tell you for Dr. Jack at the time of the year he tested it, which I believe was August, September, where he tested it was, was here in North Central Florida. On what he tested, following the pattern he tested, it wasn't very impactful for us. We didn't really see a significant uh, improvement in colony health with regard to Varroa. In fact, the brood break via Cajun Queens was somewhat detrimental to the hives. He, he had the reverse effect, which is where it was stressful to the bees. I don't know if it was related to caging the queen for 28 days, but nevertheless, there was, there was a bit of a problem. That said, I certainly do believe that brood breaks can be accomplished, can be done right and done well, certain times of the year in certain places. And in fact, for many hobbyist beekeepers, brood breaks might provide a reasonable control management for them. I say many hobbyist beekeepers because obviously brood break, anything that requires you to go and find a queen and cage her for X amount of time is going to be a lot of work that a commercial beekeeper would have to do. And so it may not be advantageous for them, even though, again, I first heard about this through commercial beekeepers in Italy doing it. Nevertheless, it could be a lot of work. And again, there's very variations of brood breaks. You don't always have to cage the queen. You could take out all of the brood from the hive and use it for something else, maybe to start new nukes or something like that, and only have adult bees left in the nest. That's, that's an immediate brood break. And so there are other ways to implement this strategy, and it can be done well, and it can, it can work. I just will point out that the listener asked about some potential drawbacks, and we did see in one of our studies a potential drawback. I, drawback. I do think it can be used effectively, uh, but more research needs to be done. And it's almost always coupled with a treatment of some sort once there's no longer brood in the nest. So I guess that I, I was just thinking about the queen being caged. What does she, what does she do? She just hangs out for 28 days when she's caged. That's it. It's almost like when you purchase a queen and they come to you in the mail in a cage, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's that pattern. She's just hanging out in a queen cage waiting to be released. And as you imagine, you know, there could be some drawbacks to that from the queen's perspective. Maybe sure. by the time she's come out, she's, she's damaged in some ways. Maybe she doesn't survive whatever the case, but, but again, I'll stress there are other ways that you can create brood breaks. And, and you get a natural brood break anyway for most folks keeping Apis mellifera, and that occurs during winter. So winter can be a good time to use treatments like, at least here in the U.S., formic acid, oxalic acid, things that may not work as well when there's lots of brood in the hive, but certainly could work uh, reasonably well when you get that natural brood break. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say, we, we usually recommend using the Honeybee Health Coalition. Their website has a really great Varroa resource where you can kind of go through a bunch of different questions to figure out, you know, what treatment to use during different times of year, depending on what your colonies look like. So I hope our listeners uh, visit Honeybee Health Coalition and are able to kind of go through their website to look at some of the Varroa stuff. All right. So for the third question, oh, Jamie, this is, this is like your specialty, right? Small hive beetle uh, <laughs> and small <laughs> hive beetle larva. So this, this person's asking about small hive beetle pupa and if it falls to the ground and, you know, they finish their growth and they develop in the soil, can their development be interrupted by having the beehive sitting on something other than dirt? We get this call all the time and people yeah. say, if mm -hmm. I get a huge slab of concrete, you know, how far do I need to make this? And it just makes me think back to your PhD story. And I'm going <laughs> to let you tell that. Yeah, it's funny because I think I probably answered this question already a lot on this podcast. I think we get it a lot. And I think we've even had small hive beetle segments where I've discussed it and we still get it because anytime I give a talk on small hive beetles, this question comes up. I tell you, if I had a dollar, it's like one of those things. If I had a dollar every time I were asked this question, you'd be a millionaire. I'd be a multimillionaire probably. <laughs> and, 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 and I understand the motivation behind the question. It's a real simple biology of small hive beetles. The adults go into hives. The females lay eggs in the hives. The larvae come out of these eggs and eat in the hive, but they don't pupate in the hive. The larvae come out right when the sun starts to set. They come out overnight time, crawl until they find suitable soil, go into that soil and pupate in the soil. So long story short, Part of the small hive beetle life cycle occurs in the soil around the hives that they develop in, right? So when beekeepers hear that, even when scientists hear that, they go, gosh, if they come out, all I have to do is put something under my hive, maybe rocks, 
maybe cardboard, maybe carpet, maybe concrete. All I have to do is put something under my hives. So when the larvae come out of the hives, they can't go into the soil and pupate and they die. The problem with that is, of course, Amy, to the story you referenced. And I'll tell the story again. If you've heard it before on the podcast, I apologize, but it's certainly one of those things that folks ask about a lot. When I did my PhD in South Africa at Rhodes University, <clears throat> we uh, I was rearing small hive beetles uh, for the purpose of having them around so I could do research on them. And, and I can't remember, it's 15, 20 years ago now, but I believe it was the second story of the building where we had our rearing lab in a closet. I kept them in a closet. I remember I would always get to work early, usually before the faculty members and other students would arrive. And I would walk you know, into the building, up the first flight of stairs, up the second flight of stairs, and, and go and see um, to how my larva rearing program is going. And I remember one morning walking up the stairs and not really looking down until I got to the floor where the, the rearing program was. But then I looked down and I saw small hive beetle larvae everywhere. They had crawled out of the rearing program, out of the closet, out of the lab, and were walking down the halls of the building where we had our rearing program. So I panicked. I walked down the <laughs> stairs and I saw them walking down the stairs. I went were they taking the, the elevator it, it, too? I, no, I hadn't noticed that yet. <laughs> they hadn't, but they weren't able to push the buttons. But, but for sure, when I walked down to the next floor, I saw them on the next floor. I had missed them coming in because I wasn't thinking about looking down. And then when I looked out that, they were looking, they were going down those stairs as well. So within one night, they had probably crawled, I don't know, just guessing, 20 to upwards of 50 meters. So what I discovered, number one, they can crawl great distances away from the hive all in one evening to find suitable soil in which to pupate. So while I think it is possible to put hives on something that would prohibit larvae from reaching the soil, it's really not feasible in most circumstances because the larvae can crawl 20, 30, 40 meters potentially in a nighttime to find soil in which they can pupate. So it's a great idea, a great, great, great idea, but biologically the larvae are just too good of crawlers. And so a lot of people then will take the next approach, which is, well, maybe I can put some sort of trap under the hive, something that the larvae come out of the hive, fall into and can't escape. And that is a much more feasible option at the moment than putting something under that they just can't eventually get to the end to to get to the soil. In fact, um, some colleagues of uh, mine and I published a paper recently, I think in the last year or two, about trapping larvae coming out of hives. And we can link that in the show notes for today. But but if as far as locating hives own something, you know, it would have to be a big concrete slab in order to be able to beat the larvae. But good question, nevertheless, certainly one that comes up quite a bit. Yeah, that one's a good one. We receive that one all the time. So, all right. Well, there we have it. Our question and answer segment. Don't forget to send us questions on our social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or send us an email. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on social media at ufhoneybeelab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Vu. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Vu and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening and see you next week.